0: This Day in Crime is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Let's start the show.
1: Happy Wednesday, everyone. I'm Todd McComas, and if you're the person in your household that stops the microwave three seconds before the preset time runs its course, clear the timer so it shows the clock, It could save your relationship. That's a little advice from your Uncle Todd. And now that I fixed that problem, let's get back to our recap of the top crime stories of 2023. Here's Eric Quintana A 27
0: year mystery solved. The Unabomber is no more. A confession finally tells us what happened, gangs working together, and a literal family feud after family feud. All that next on This Day in Crime. What's up, everyone? My name is Eric Quintana, and today is January 3rd, 2024. Congrats to the Las Vegas Police Department for destroying any reason to watch the Who whodunit documentaries about Tupac. I, for one, was shocked when I saw the headlines this year because, frankly, I never thought it would happen. One of the few times I actually sat up and said, wow, out loud. All eyes on Dwayne Keefe D. Davis, who was arrested back in September for ordering the 1996 killing of hip-hop legend Tupac Shakur. The arrest ended the 27-year mystery around who was responsible for the rapper's death. Authorities say Davis' own public comments revived the investigation that led to his arrest. He admitted in an interview and in his 2019 memoir that he provided the gun used in the drive-by shooting. Back on September 7, 1996, Tupac went to the Bruce Seldon-Mike Tyson boxing match in Las Vegas, Nevada. Tupac went to the match with Suge Knight, the head of Death Row Records. After the fight, Trayvon Trey Lane, an associate of Suge Knight, spotted Orlando Baby Lane Anderson in the MGM lobby. Trayvon Lane told Tupac, who then turned to Anderson and asked if he was from the South, as in Southside Crips, and then punched him in the face. A fight ensued which was caught on MGM surveillance cameras. Tupac went back to his hotel to change clothes and then left with Suge Knight to Club 662 to perform a charity concert. At 11.15 that night, a Cadillac pulled up next to the BMW Shug Knight and Tupac were riding in. The back window rolled down and the shooter began firing a Glock 22 at the BMW. Tupac was hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the thigh. Tupac was rushed to University Medical Center of Southern Nevada. He was placed on life support machines and ultimately put into a medically induced coma after repeatedly trying to get out of bed. Tupac would die six days later from his injuries. Davis has always been one of the four suspects identified early on in the investigation. Las Vegas police said Davis was the shot caller for the group of individuals who committed the crime. And in Nevada, if you help someone commit the crime, you can be charged with the crime. In his memoir, Davis admitted to providing the guns used in the drive-by shooting. He said he was in the front seat of the Cadillac and had slipped a gun into the back seat. He implicated his nephew, Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, saying that he was the one who shot Tupac and Suge Knight. Davis was arrested while on a walk near his home on the outskirts of Las Vegas. Police collected multiple computers, a cell phone, a hard drive, several 40 caliber bullets, two tubs containing photographs, and a copy of Davis's memoir. I guess after almost 30 years, you think no one cares enough anymore to make an actual arrest? I'd be interested to hear from Davis about why he spoke out, as opposed to just taking the details with him to the grave. Davis has pleaded not guilty to the charges, and the trial is expected to take place June 3rd, 2024. I've always been interested in how the mind of a madman works. One of the most famous examples is none other than Ted Kaczynski, also known as Unabomber. After spending 25 years in prison, the Unabomber took his own life this year at 81 years old. Kaczynski was found in his cell at the Federal Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina on June 10th, around 12.30 a.m. He was pronounced dead later that morning. Ted Kaczynski was responsible for the death of three people and injuring 23 others between 1978 and 1995 in which he hand-delivered or mailed improvised bombs. He sent bombs to universities, an American Airlines flight, the president of United Airlines, computer stores, scientists, and different professors. He later wrote a manifesto called Industrial Society and Its Future. In it, he says he would stop future bombings if his demands were met. The demands? That a major newspaper publish the 35,000-word essay. Essentially, the manifesto outlined that technology was bad for the human race. Technology has destabilizing effects on society, has made life unfulfilling, and has attributed to psychological suffering. After 17 years of running from the law, well, I guess he wasn't really running, but just very well hidden, Ted Kaczynski was arrested at his tiny cabin in Lincoln, Montana, on April 3, 1996. Bomb components, journal pages with bomb-making experiments, and the original type manuscript of his manifesto were all found at the cabin. Ted eventually pleaded guilty and specifically rejected his lawyer's wish to use insanity as part of his defense. Eventually, items from Ted Kaczynski's cabin were sold at auction, raising over $232,000 for the Unabomber victim's families. The cabin Ted lived in is now on display in Washington, D.C.
1: Here's a riddle for you. What does our show and recovering alcoholics have in common? We both Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We all remember how big the Natalie Holloway story was back in 2005. At the time, all fingers pointed to one man, Joran Vandersloot. Now it's official. Joran Vandersloot killed Natalie Holloway. Back in June, Joran was extradited to the United States, specifically Birmingham, Alabama, on extortion and wire fraud charges. The charges go back to 2010, when Yoren told the Holloway family he would lead them to the body, identify the people involved in her death, and explain the circumstances of what happened for a price of $250,000. As part of a plea deal to those charges, Yoren confessed to killing Natalie Holloway. In May of 2005, Natalie Holloway went on a trip to Aruba to celebrate her high school graduation. It's there she met up with Yoren Vandersloot at Carlos and Charlie's Bar. Natalie is seen leaving the bar in a car with Yoren and two friends. The two friends dropped the pair off not far from the hotel where Natalie was staying. They decided to walk along the beach for a bit before Jorin laid Natalie down and started kissing her. As things heated up, Natalie began rejecting Jorin's sexual advances and eventually kneed Yorin in the crotch. In response, Jorin got up and kicked Natalie extremely hard in the face. He said she was unconscious, possibly even dead. He then found a cinder block and smashed her head in completely. Joran said that although it was dark, he could see her face collapsed in. Yorin then got scared, didn't really know what to do, and decided to push her off into the ocean. After that, he simply walked home. Holloway's body has never been found, and she was legally declared dead by a judge in 2012. The United States doesn't have jurisdiction to charge someone for a murder in Aruba, but the Aruba Public Prosecutor's Office did not rule out the possibility of new legal action Yorin could face after this confession. Interesting note, however, the statute of limitations for homicide in Aruba is 12 years. So there's a chance that even after this confession, urine may not serve time specifically for the murder of Natalie Holloway. He is, however, serving a 28-year prison sentence for murdering a Peruvian woman in 2010 and 18 years for trafficking cocaine into his Peruvian prison. So he's in jail no matter what for the foreseeable future. I'll be honest, this next headline from 2023 has me thinking about The Godfather, but everyone has Mexican accents. And when I saw this headline, I thought, Mexico has a mafia? But no, this is a Mexican-American organization. On November 14th, 2023, 17 MS-13 gang members were arrested in Los Angeles and 23 total members and associates were charged with trafficking large quantities of methamphetamine and illegally possessing ammunition found in what's called a ghost gun. Don't worry, for all you non-gun nerds out there, I looked it up for you. Ghost guns are essentially untraceable firearms that can be bought online and assembled at home. A DIY gun-making kit, if you will. Authorities seized multiple pounds of meth, fentanyl, and cocaine, also seizing nine firearms and approximately $94,000 in cash. Allegedly, the MS-13 moves were being made at the direction of an incarcerated Mexican Mafia member. So time for an intro to Gangs 101. MS-13 is typically seen as a Salvadoran gang, but it originated in Los Angeles to protect Salvadoran immigrants from other gangs in the LA area. The Mexican Mafia also originated in the U.S. and is specifically a prison organization. It's apparently the deadliest and most powerful gang in the California prison system. The two gangs have been working together since around 2011, when an MS-13 gang member finally got a seat at the table with the Mexican Mafia. Authorities say the arrest will have a meaningful and lasting impact on crime in Los Angeles by taking the leadership and the most violent of these gang members off the street. Someone somewhere in gangland is flipping over tables and yelling very loud Spanish curse words right now. Who doesn't love Family Feud? If you haven't spent at least four hours watching the best of Family Feud since Steve Harvey took over, you're missing out on life. No, seriously, next time you need to turn that frown upside down, go look that up. Absolutely hilarious. What's not so hilarious is this literal Family Feud. This story all starts back in 2019 when Timothy Blyfnick was a contestant on Family Feud. Steve Harvey asked him as a part of the game, what's the biggest mistake you made at your wedding? Timothy, as part of the game, said, honey, I love you, but said, I do? Everyone's reaction was on point, with Steve Harvey even agreeing with Timothy that he's gonna get in trouble for that later. Fast forward to 2023, Timothy was found guilty of murdering his then-ex-wife, Becky, who was shot 14 times at close range and found dead in the second-floor bathroom. Apparently, Timothy planned and practiced the murder, searching things online like, how to open a door with a crowbar, how to make a homemade silencer, and how to wash off gunpowder. Becky also feared Timothy would do something to her in the days leading up to the murder. Texts were found on her phone that said, "'If something ever happens to me, make sure the number one person of interest is Tim. I'm putting this in writing that I'm fearful he will somehow harm me.'" Timothy has maintained his innocence and has stated in an interview that his family feud answer was in no way malicious. One of those moments I bet he really wished he could take back. That's all I've got for today, but let me introduce you to Laura Benson, your host for tomorrow's episode. Thanks, Eric. Every Thursday, I'll be bringing you the day's top true crime stories, plus some lesser known headlines that might surprise you. Tomorrow, I'll be covering some unexpected crime resolutions that happened in 2023. Don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss an episode.
1: That's all for now from This Day in Crime. This Day in Crime is a production of Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey, produced in association with Burning Mountain Productions. Sources for today's episode and full credits can be found in the show notes, and you can follow us on social media at This Day in Crime. We're back at it tomorrow. Thanks for listening.